Hi, I'm Paul Stringfellow and welcome to another edition of Tech Interviews. Uh, so on this week's show, we're doing big topics. Um, we are taking a look at kind of the uh, evolving nature of AI and uh, machine learning inside of the enterprise. You know, how, how's the technology evolving? And maybe more importantly, how's the use of that technology evolving in terms of one, how businesses are taking advantage of the technology and two, what that's going to allow them to do in, in the future. So um, uh, to help me to do that, I'm joined today by Slater Viktorov. Hi, Slater. How are you doing? Hey Paul, I'm doing great. You know, it's a it's a good morning, and uh, thanks for having me. No, hey, hey thanks for uh, spending some time out of your busy day to uh, speak to us on tech interviews this week. So, um, well, looks later before we jump into kind of our, our topic for today and and looking at this kind of evolving use of AI and ML. Um, do you want to introduce? Take a little moment to introduce yourself. Tell us, uh, tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Absolutely. Uh, my name is Slater Viktorov. Uh, I'm a Boston-based entrepreneur and the founder and CTO of Indico Data Solutions. Uh, we've been around for about seven years, focusing on the enterprise space of document understanding with a really deep focus on transfer learning and some of the modern, uh, you know, fancy techniques that you hear about coming out of uh, Google and OpenAI and whatnot. Uh, you know, I'm a very literal dorm room founder. Uh, you know, I might uh, tell you exactly which dorm room later on tonight. Uh, you know, other than that, just a, just a regular programmer, really. So well, I I, I kind of like that. I like I like the low key introduction. Um, you know the the uh, the, the literal dorm room um, uh, entrepreneur. I, I think that's a that's a great introduction. Um, you know, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about what kind of you guys at Indico do a little bit later because obviously that that has um, you know the, the 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 topic of today has kind of come from that practical day to day stuff that you see inside of the enterprise. Um, but you know when when um, when we kind of uh, you know got, got put together to to have this chat, um, yeah, what what caught my attention was this idea of exploring how AI and ML are kind of evolving and, and particularly the the enterprise use of that technology because I think it's one of those things that we talk about an awful lot you know everybody likes to talk about AI and ML you know it, it's it's in the first four things on any IT um, IT bingo card um, that, that you've got to be talking about MI, uh, AI and ML because if you're not do you even work in technology of course <laughs> um, so you know but, but I think it's interesting to look at what's next for that because I think at the moment lots of us are still in a position where we're looking at how we start to utilize that technology you know it's increasingly it's embedded in lots of the day-to-day -day stuff that we do lots of vendors release their technology that talk about how they're using machine learning and analytics to to improve the user experience um, so I think it, it gives us a lot to explore in, in kind of 30 minutes but um, We'll, we'll give it our best shot. Um, so, you know, wh why don't we start maybe Slater? Uh, give us a, kind of your view on how you currently see AI and ML being adopted within the, the enterprise space. Absolutely. You know, and I love that you pointed out the fact that over the last couple of years, almost everything has become AI and ML, right? And, you know, this is being called uh, AI washing, I think, by a lot of people. And, and believe it or not, you know, as, uh, as an AI guy myself, so to speak, uh, I... I'm very much of the belief that machine learning and even more so newer deep learning techniques are very far from a panacea from all of your problems, right? You know, I, I, I am an engineer first and foremost, right? And to me, machine learning uh, is best viewed in terms of what it can really successfully accomplish. And, you know, when we look at the enterprise and exactly how they've gone about that journey, I think it's really interesting to see some of the huge successes and some of the huge 
whiffs, right? You know, I think a lot of enterprises went out and they said, AI is happening, data science is interesting, big data is a thing, right? I'm going to go hire a bunch of data scientists with PhDs and I'm going to put them in a corner and expect them to produce value, right? Um, and it's really unfortunate, right? Because a lot of those people were really very talented, but because it was such a new industry, in a lot of those places, they really weren't given the uh, structure around them to succeed. Right. You know, data engineering was still not in a practical sense. And the idea that you're going to put a data science team together, not give them any data and still expect them to magically produce value, you know, obviously, I think is a little is a little short sighted. Um, But, you know, I think one of the things and, you know, there have been obviously many surges throughout history and interest in AI. But one of the things that I think stands in really stark opposition today is it's not like everyone is getting this wrong. Right. You know, I, I think often the numbers are still ridiculous. You know, 60 percent of all companies that have implemented some AI initiatives have not seen an ROI or something. But there are some very clear, very big winners and people that have actually used this new technology in, in incredibly effective ways. Right. And I think that's really what's different about it this time around is that everyone in the enterprise, even if they don't understand what is interesting and useful, they see all of this stuff happening around the space and they see that there is something interesting there. And so there's there's a lot of hunger for it, even if uh, even if I think, despite all the hubbub, I would still characterize the adoption as very very immature. You know, I still think, for all the progress in the last ten years, we're, we're frankly still in our infancy from an adoption perspective. I think in practically every metric. And I think you know you make some hugely important points there, and you know, and I think actually the first point that you made um, is is possibly the key to a lot of this in in lots of organizations in that. You know, and it's interesting that it sounds like you're still seeing this. I think this idea that people just assume because AI and AI and ML is some, you know, we talked before we started recording about this kind of, uh, you know, black box technology type of approach that we just have this this thing that sits in a corner and magically comes up with the answers. Uh, and of course, the reality is is far from that. You know, the the adoption of a piece of technology that has um, AI stamped on its box that says I'm an AI driven piece of technology is in itself not the answer you know it it could be it's not to say that it isn't but just putting it in and just deploying it is not going to solve all of your problems you know and 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 it's interesting that you know you talk about this kind of immaturity i mean is that is that genuinely how you see it right now is that that actually organizations still to a degree are expecting i just plug it in and it fixes everything yeah, you know, and I think that there are a couple of, there's a couple of flavors of this view. I think actually, I love where you started, because I think that there's actually quite a bad analogy that people have in their head when it comes to AI. And, you know, I keep saying, you know, I'm not a very sci-fi guy, so you'll have to forgive me for a moment as I use a kind of out there analogy, but, but I actually think it's pretty compelling. So I think that there's a common view of AI systems as sort of these these fully functional androids, right? You know, that's almost what we have in our head. And it shows up, you know, in the RPA space, it shows up in intelligent automation, it shows up everywhere you see AI, sort of this notion that I've got a, you know, robot worker that is somehow comparable with a human worker. And I actually just think it's fundamentally the wrong way to look at the technology. Um, the way that we much prefer to look at it is uh, like a bionic arm. And that is the analogy that we use, right? But it's this notion that if you're using AI correctly, right, this is something that is empowering the people that you already have in place, right? It is to make humans more effective. And it's fundamentally this recognition that AI is not some, you know, magical self-moded genie, right? It is very much not, you know, it is something that is controlled by us. It is built by us, right? It is a tool that we use towards an end. 
And, you know, some people out there maybe are using these tools, I hesitate to say irresponsibly, but maybe without the full context of knowing exactly what they're doing, knowing exactly what the consequences of the decision they're making in, in the production is. Just because, um, I will say the proliferation of the technology in this case has definitely exceeded general knowledge about the technology. Uh, and I think it's it's inevitable in some ways. I think that there's, again, some people doing really incredible work as uh, as a result, but also some pretty embarrassing failures, frankly, for the industry as a result. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if you uh, heard about the do, Anderson you want, case with a... Uh, do you want to name names? I was, uh, there's, you know, there's one, there's one I'll, I mean, just because this one is public, right, um, is uh, the IBM and UCLA Anderson, uh, or maybe I'll add, uh, maybe I can mention a couple of public ones. So that was one example. And, and in case you're not familiar, uh, very roughly, IBM sold the world to Anderson, something no short of they were going to cure cancer with AI. The idea that it was going to be this incredible diagnostics engine that would, you know, take in all of the information about a patient, uh, patient and give this, you know, personalized medicine regime that would, again, cure cancer or some some facsimile thereof. Uh, they spent $60 million on it. Uh, they put nothing into production, right? And at the end of three years and $60 million in hard cost to IBM, even ignoring all the time they spent on it, right, that they could have been treating patients with, uh, they wrote the whole thing off. Right. They just said there's no there here. Right. You know, there, there's no real goal. We haven't seen any meaningful progress that, you know, that's really embarrassing. You know, I've been very vocal in my criticisms of IBM for many, many years. Um, while, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of individual people at IBM that do very, very good work. You know, IBM has, uh, you know, the Watson Group, they've they've gotten a reputation for this. Right. I mean, there, there's a pattern of these kinds of massive promises and just really uh, disappointing delivery. Um, not that they're the only ones doing it, right? I think IBM, they made a really big bet against deep learning very early. It is in some ways not their fault that they were wrong, but you know, you put $2 billion in marketing budget behind an effort that is you know, not backed up by academic research. And you know, it's no surprise that Watson has ended up where it has. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, I think it's a bummer. <laughs> and that, that's a great phrase. That's it. What a great way to end that. Um, <laughs> and and so, so I think what's, I mean, what, I think what's really interesting in that, in that kind of example though, is, you know, and it, it sounds like it's not, you know, with, with examples like that and, you know, without giving, as you said, you know, it's, it, it, while IBM's a, a very noticeable and public example, they're, they're by no means the only, only people where, where this kind of outcome is, is being seen. And it sounds like from the way you described it, it's actually, it's not a technology problem with this kind of thing. This is much more of a deployment and adoption problem, you know, that the that, that organizations that while the technology exists, you know, it's almost that, that promise to, I can do lots of clever stuff for you. That promise is not unreasonable to say that actually using learning, using analytics, using a level of artificial intelligence, that you can indeed deliver some really smart outcomes. Actually, if you don't do all of the legwork and don't get all of the all of the underpinnings of that correct in the first place, you're just going to have a big failure and it's just going to be a big expensive failure. 
Absolutely. And, and critically, right, you know, you, you look at the way that they're framing this from the very start. And if you think if only they had framed this rather than, you know, we're going to make a, a diagnostic bot, if they had really kind of from the start thought of this as something that's working hand in hand with humans, that's kind of augmenting this process end to end, you know, it, it's a lot harder to have a huge failure like that in that case, right? Because chances are you're going to make tons of marginal improvements, you know, over time. Um, and again, you know, to your point, it is easy to beat up on IBM, but they're they're by no means the only people uh, going through these situations. And I think one of the other problems, and again, it's, it's really unfortunate, as natural as it is, is just the incredibly inflated expectations around AI. Um, and, you know, we, we joke sometimes at Indico, even though in, in some ways it's it's a little tragic, right, about the scrape the internet and do magic use case, right? Um, it's like... I promise, like, anyone who's been in the AI space long enough has heard this pitch, right, is, oh, can't you go scrape the internet, right? They always say scrape the internet as if that's a, a thing that you can do, right? Um, and, and, yeah. and do X, <laughs> right? And the, the X, you know, we've had people pitch us everything from, you know, predict logistics uh, issues, literally, you know, asking us to predict the weather, predicting the stock market, right? Uh, predict upcoming mergers and acquisitions. And, and I think it's just, it's problematic because it's, uh, like I said, it, it's a very bad mentality of AI, this sort of like galaxy brain, like I don't have to be responsible for the outcome of this sort of mentality. And I think in a lot of ways, what people are asking for there, it's not a real technical AI solution, right? What they're asking for is a genie in the bottle. Right. But asking for is like, I want something that will magically solve all of my problems without me even having to articulate what those problems are. And, and I think that's really that, that's the key miss is that the problems are human and it is not reasonable for us to look to AI for the answers only to help us implement and deliver on answers that we've already decided on. Uh, and again, I, I just think it's, it's a philosophical miss for a lot of folks. And I think, you know, I think that's a that's a really clever way of framing it as well, because I think the idea that what we tend to see is is organisations expecting you know genie in a bottle that I I I don't want I don't want to do the groundwork. What I want is some magic button that I press, uh, which happens to be AI or ML written on the button. On this occasion, I press that magic button, and that magic button solves all my problems. Like you said, you know, scrape, scrapes the internet, or the idea that here's all of the data that I own inside of my data center. Mm-hmm. Tell me something that I don't know. Tell me something that's going to, that's going to change my my organization. Uh, you know, and I, and I think it's a like I say, it's, it's almost an interesting human failing, isn't it? Um, that that we we're, we're always after kind of the quick way, the quick win, the easy way out for some of this kind of stuff. It's like, it's like um, the get rich quick scheme, right? It's yeah. like the, it was never going to work in the first place, but I mean, it, it's appealing. Like I, I see why people fall for it, right? Yeah, and and do you think so? Is it is it more apt that when we're we're talking about AI, when we're talking about ML, and we're, we're trying to apply some context to it, that it's far, far more important that that we appreciate something you've already touched on a couple of times. So, so I'm guessing the answer is yes to this. But but we appreciate that that technology is as as clever and as rapidly developing as that technology is, as processors and the amount of data and the speed we can do things at improves. That's really what it's bringing us. It's bringing us that augmentation of. You, know, you, you talked before about you kind of look at these huge data sets and data sets, and the reality is, as human beings, we'd probably never be able to look at that entire data center data set. However, yeah. we can give that to a machine, and if you and if you point the machine in the right direction, because it can chain all of that data so quickly, it will ultimately find the answer 
that as humans we probably would find if we had a gazillion years to find it you know is, is that is that a more accurate way of looking at, at how we should be thinking about this technology you know i i think it's it's interesting and i think that there's a couple of different you know i'll maybe say first and foremost you know ai is an incredibly diverse space right and i think that as tempting as it is to sort of say, like, this is the interesting thing about it, in most cases, it's really not the case, right? I would say that AI has very specific problems that it is very, very good at, right? And that's, I think, actually what's most important is that because what you described um, in a general sense, we can't do. Right. But in very, very specific senses, right, if you add enough you know, constraints around it, if you add enough asterisks around it, right, um, the more closely you specify your problem, the more possible it becomes. Right. And, and I will even say, and this is why I think, again, data programming is actually a really, really good analogy, is that there, there's a bit of a, a paradox right now, actually, in the ML space. Um, there, there's a wonderful blog post that I actually recommend you know everyone should read that says you know nlp has finally had its clever hans moment uh and there's something that i am calling the clever hans effect uh have you ever heard of clever hans no this is this is new carry on yeah so so clever hans is a horse um and so i i think he's an american horse so that might be why he might be more more popular in like the american southwest but he had a show in this you know traveling kind of medicine van and the idea was that this horse could do math and it was incredible. So the way uh, it would happen is, you know, the handler would come up and they would write something on the board, right? And the horse would stamp their hoof the right number of times. And now they did all sorts of experiments. And it was really incredible, right? Because to, to the eyes of everybody watching, this horse could absolutely do math. And they couldn't tell any different. Even the handler truly believed that the horse could do math, didn't realize that they were doing anything. What it turns out is that, you know, horses are very socially intelligent animals, the handler, uh, and it all comes down to actually the way in which the horse was measured, because the horse would just stamp its foot, and there was a certain tension, right, in the handler's body that when it hit the right number of stamps would relieve, at which point the horse knew it was time to stop stamping. Um, and and, and it's, uh, I think it's a great anecdote or, or kind of story for getting the right answer for the wrong reasons. Now, the problem is, and actually the more interesting aspect, I think, is the follow-up to Clever Hans is, okay, um, why is that not a valid solution to the problem, right? And, and you know, in, in the case of Clever Hans, they, they conducted experiments to kind of isolate things and show, okay, you know, the horse can't do math. But, you know, at the same time, it was still an incredibly impressive thing that the horse was doing. And we often have the same issue in AI, where as far as we can tell, the way that we are running the experiment, it is as smart as a human is. But the second we, you know, scratch under the surface, the second we change our experimental setup somehow, we often are able to very quickly find sort of stunning ignorance under the hood. But it's led us with this weird paradox where the biggest problem is that we don't actually know how to encourage the kind of behavior that we want, right? It's like, why is it important to have this, this reasoning chain? So uh, actually what I think is is a much more interesting trend in a lot of ways than pure machine learning when we look out over the course of the next decade, uh, is this term machine teaching, uh, which actually Microsoft has been playing around with a lot. But, you know, it's, it's proliferating a bit, but I actually think it's a really powerful term because it says that we need to focus on what it is that we are teaching these machines 
right, do a lot less of this kind of uh, black box type modeling on, on strict kind of crude classification tasks and think more critically about what is the full system that we want to be deploying this in, right? You know, more interesting optimizations. And, you know, it's something that, I, you know, I don't think it's too contentious to say that academia does not necessarily have the tools to investigate that thoroughly today. Um, but I think it's it's very, very worthwhile. I think that that's where kind of the next tranche of really significant advances in the space are going to come from, is, is new methods of supervision, right? It's kind of rethinking what I would call a really, really primitive view of just, you know, binary supervised and unsupervised learning techniques. You know, I think that it's... Uh, it's much, much more complex than that. Um, yeah, and so, I think maybe maybe twenty years ago those those terms were useful, but but not today. So, so that, that to raise a question for me then. So, you know, it, we it, yeah we we, we talked we talked a couple of times and, and we talked in the introduction about uh, kind of the enterprise use of, of AI in ML. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's fine an enterprise CIO or uh, somebody architecting solutions inside of the enterprise today, and, and I'm maybe watching or listening to this this conversation and thinking, you know. We've we've been sold the AI dream, you know. We we think AI and ML or, or some kind of analytics has a part to play in what we're trying to do, how we improve the outcomes for our organization, all that kind of thing. And they'll be listening to this and thinking, but actually, am I going to make a mess of it? Are we going to invest money in something that's never quite going to work out in in the way it should? So if if those people are having those those questions now, you know, some, so if somebody's asking us that question sat sat here right now, you know, what what would you say to them in terms of how do they, from an enterprise point of view, you know, what what are some of the changes that they should be considering, and maybe some of the t- changes that are coming down the road in in terms of of the way that this technology is starting to be implemented by vendors. What are some of the things they should be looking at, uh, you know, and if you could give them yeah. a couple of tips in terms of what are the kind of things you would suggest that an organization did before they embarked on any kind of investment in, in this kind of technology? Absolutely. I think it's, it's a great question. I think there's a couple of aspects. And I think number one is to recognize that you're not going to be able to do it successfully without educating yourself. Um, and, you know, just as importantly, what I think is really important is you can't get caught up in the vendor's tempo. Um, and, you know, obviously this is like almost self-defeating for me as a vendor to say this, but um, there are a lot of people selling snake oil out there, right? There are a lot of people that are absolutely willing to tell you that, you know, your simplistic view of AI where you've got a bot that's got, you know, one accuracy number and it's 90% and, you know, that's all there is to it. You know, someone, someone will be willing to sell you that. Um, and, and that is where you're going to fail, Right. I think that what I have seen, that is, and actually maybe one person I would recommend in particular is the chief uh, decision intelligence officer at Google, Cassie Kozerkov, um, has a really uh, you know, excellent kind of line of content really on this subject, right? It's about, you know, how do you identify, uh, she calls them data charlatans, right? And it is very, very basic stuff. Like you have to measure that they can actually produce what they say they produce, right? You know, you have to set up a blind test set and make sure that they don't have access to it ahead of time, right? And and again, they're just these very, very basic steps, but you have to assert them, right? You have to make sure that someone is actually delivering on what they've told you they can deliver, right? You should be able to do a proof of concept with them very easily. And at the same time, you know, keep your eye focused as much on the traditional software view and, you know, ROI for your business as possible, 
right? And a lot of what I say when I mean don't get caught up in the vendor's tempo is a lot of vendors are going to tell you why their AI approach is, is the absolute best, right? Why, you know, fractals are, you know, the, you know, the hot new thing. Um, and, and I think that's actually, it's a really bad kind of pitch, right? The vendor should be telling you what techniques they're using, right? They should be able to link you to public research because they are using public research no matter what they tell you, right? And, and you know, you need to find that level of transparency. And, and again, like, hold their nose to something that you can actually measure, right? Not something that they can tell you in a pitch, because anyone can tell you their accuracy is 99%. Um, you know, depending on what definition of accuracy they're using, I can, for the same use case, argue that it is 0% accurate or 100% accurate. Um, and, and literally, I could call both of those accuracy with a straight face because the, the definition of accuracy is just so vague. Yeah, it's just just when the horse stops stomping its hooves. Um, that, exactly. That's, that's exactly. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> so, that's, yeah, yeah. So, so something we, we spoke about actually before we started recording, I, I just wanted to kind of just take a moment on, on this now because I, I think it play, you know, it, it dovetails perfectly into kind of what you just talked about in terms of making sure, you know, if you're going to get success in this kind of space, make sure you do that groundwork up front. Understand you know understand the answers that you would expect from a a data set and and make sure that the solution that you're considering is going to hit those numbers the other side of that though i suppose was this this kind of idea and you talked before about this this, this concept of data engineering you know how how is it, how important is it to make sure that those data sets that you're using are, are accurate effective and and viable you know as opposed to because I think, you know, we, we, we touched on this earlier on. I think the idea that, that for many of us, we just think we can throw all data at some kind of AI solution and it will magically sift through it and give us the right answer. You know, so, so how important is that prep work before? I mean, look, it, it's garbage in, garbage out, right? It really, really is. And, you know, I could tell you, you know, we could take up a whole hour just telling you about the horror stories I've seen in the enterprise. But, you know, I will say time and time again, do not assume that your data is right as it is you know you're a much much better suited by getting some statistically valid set of actually pristine data than trying to you know torture whatever data it is you have in production you know i, I will say of the organizations we work with 90 percent of them find that the way that they have been generating production data is is not classically useful uh, you know observable and it can't really be monitored and and look i mean it, it sucks Right. You know, there's, there's nobody saying it. Right. Like they, they made a mistake in their data engineering, you know, probably 10 years ago. Right. And, and it just means that it is not particularly useful. So it's unfortunate, but um, you're never going to change that fact. And so if you do want to improve things, right, you have to kind of pick yourself up. You know, you will still be able to leverage it in some way, but you have to create, you know, your statistically valid test. Right. It, you know, if you can't generate real ground truth for, you know, a couple of hundred docs to test a vendor, right? Then, then what are you doing automating the use case, really, right? Mm -hmm. You know, clearly it's not well understood or consistent enough for automation yet. Um, so, you know, uh, that, that's you what say I would say to folks. Yeah, I mean, just actually just on that, I mean, would you say that that would also be true in terms of kind of the production deployment of that? So, so would you almost be better off starting with a brand new clean set of, I, I appreciate you can't just ignore all of the, the, the historical stuff that you've got, but, but rather than trying to feed that in as it is almost better off starting from maybe not starting from scratch, but something close to it. You got to accept that you may have to do that. Right. It's, it's the unfortunate reality of it. And 
but you know, the, the truth is just that people have not sufficiently defined their processes. You know, I would say that in almost all of these clients, we find that um, what they really think of as a consistent process that everyone does the same way is anything but, right? And, and you know, it ends up being a really helpful exercise for a lot of these organizations because they find that, oh, actually, you know, Jill has been coding these in a totally different way than Bob, and Bob has been coding them a different way than Frank, right? And when you actually then look at the process, often it turns out that none of them are explicitly wrong. Uh, it's just that the process isn't well-defined, but it's really important that you come to a consistent understanding. Um, and now, you know, a lot of organizations are just sort of saying, hey, you know, there will be an audit and we'll have to pay a fine. It's just part of doing business. Um, but, you know, we we just don't take that view, right? You know, we, you know, it's one of the other ways that we often talk about our technologies. It's a way of going from individual understanding to organizational understanding, right? Just have it in a transparent place that everyone can see it and say, like, yes, that's how we should do this process. Uh, you know, if we want to change it, we can all agree to that. Well, um, uh, well, I, thought, I, mean, I think that's a great segue into, because I, I did want to take kind of the last couple of minutes we've got here, just, just to find out a little bit about kind of uh, Indico and, and, and the kind of work that you guys do um, and, and how you're seeing utilizing this kind of technology to, to make, you know, your products, your services deliver better value to the customer. Yeah, so we fundamentally sell, you know, intelligent document processing solutions. Um, what we found is that the majority of the market approaches this as, you know, you get a static black boxy API that is supposed to process invoices and like it sort of does for some of your invoices, but it doesn't quite do them the way you do it. Uh, and, and, you know, invoices are, again, kind of the very simplest side of this space. Um, so what we really have is a product that allows you to put this in the hands of your business users, right? Whatever process they're doing today, uh, document based on the unstructured side, right? They get to define how it should work, right? They get to build their own models. You know, you plug data science and sort of IT in as, as architects to make sure, you know, they can manage, you know, what goes into production and whatnot. But uh, it really is about empowering those business users as citizen data scientists. Um, one of the really key technologies that underpins it uh, is transfer learning. So to that point earlier of data sets of a sufficient size are just not really manageable. Um, we have basically enough built-in understanding and intelligence of the models that we use that, you know, every data point you give to us is worth, you know, somewhere between a hundred and a thousand data points that you give to sort of a typical deep learning model. So that means 200 examples actually is enough for you to get to a totally, you know, production worthy model. Uh, which also means that that garbage in, garbage out problem, right? You can't vet your entire historical archive, but you can vet 200 examples. So those are a couple of the key points. We do do some very fancy ML, I will say, uh, but, you know, uh, we'll be here all night if we start talking about that. Yeah, you see, that's secret source. You don't want to give that away either. That's, oh, that's... I'm very happy to give it away, actually. We're extremely transparent. Like, I'll show you the papers. We publish it. We uh, We open source everything. But the thing is that, the state of the art changes every couple of months. So, you know, whatever is powering the platform today, I promise you, you know, six from six months from now, it's going to be a completely different architecture. And I, I just wanted to, um, and I appreciate we're kind of running to the end of our recording time here, but I just wanted to pick on that what, one, one phrase you used in there, that kind of idea of um, data citizen, I think it was the phrase that you citizen used. Citizen data scientist. So, yeah, sorry, citizen data scientist. And I, and I, and I thought, because that, that plays into something that, that, that I certainly see in, in, in kind of my day job, is this idea that the importance of empowering the people who are making those business decisions rather than uh, kind of lumping all of this on the techie at, at the back end, you know, it, it, did you see what yes. you, we talked earlier on about how important, you know, how, how to do this right inside of an organization. Did you think that's also a key part of that? I think it's absolutely critical, 
Right. At the end of the day, right, a data scientist is not magically a business stakeholder because they understand how a spreadsheet works. Right. And, you know, I, I think that, again, it's too easy to just get into this mode where you're chucking stuff over the wall and both groups get super, super frustrated with each other. And, you know, I, I think there's a huge need for a platform where both can communicate and both can kind of play their roles effectively and understand if things are going according to plan. I mean, that's, that's also obviously a huge role of the Indico platform. But I think even outside of intelligent document processing, it's something that's sorely needed for any ML project. Well, late a lot. I, I, I appreciate your time. Yeah, I think it's been a really interesting chat. And, um, you know, I, I think it's it's lots of food for thought for, for anybody who's, who's kind of checking the show out. Um, but, I mean, if people want to find out more about you or more about Indico, you know, what, what's a good way they can do that? You know, you can follow me on Twitter, SL8RV. You know, follow us on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, drop me an email, sater at indico.io. I'm always interested uh, in a chat. You can uh, send me a Quora question request. I do look at those uh, if the question is interesting. And and uh, can can we also use carrier pigeon um, and and all those kind of things as well? It sounds like we're uh, I mean, cool. of course, you know. So I've got I've got my roost. You know, if you need coordinates, <laughs> I will send those over. And I've got a particular feed if you need uh, any any pigeon training. Uh, that, that, that's a great answer to a silly question. So thanks for that. I hope they all are. <laughs> but Slater, I really appreciate your time. I think that's been a fascinating chat. And um, thanks for being on Tech Interviews. And look forward to having you on again sometime in the future. Thanks very much. Total pleasure. Thanks for having me. Have an awesome night. I hope you enjoyed that. For show notes, pop over to techstringy.com. We also find all of our previous Tech Interviews episodes. And if you've got an idea for a show or would like to appear as a guest, then why not email me at podcast at techstringy.com. And if you want to make sure you catch next Tech Interviews, then why not subscribe? You can subscribe in all good homes of podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. And for the video version of the show, over on YouTube. So until next time, thanks for listening.